You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. My name is Chris Spangle. This is an episode of Libertarian Politics and Policy. This is a quick look at the news of the day from a libertarian perspective, and our mission is to help you sound smarter while talking with your friends about politics. We are hosted by the We Are Libertarians Network, and you can find more of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. And today we were talking about the coronavirus. We have Satya Marar from the Reason Foundation and a former director of policy at the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. He's contributed regularly to the Daily Telegraph, Herald Sun, and Spectator in Australia and has been published internationally in The Hill and The Verdict. So thank you for taking some time to talk to us today, Satya. I really do appreciate your time. No worries. Thanks for having me on. So the coronavirus is spreading around the world as we speak. It started in China and Wuhan, and it seems to be taking the media by storm. But we want to go beneath the headlines and kind of find out if we should be worried, too. So first, let's start with what exactly is the coronavirus? Sure. So the uh, corona- coronavirus is actually a class of multiple viruses, uh, one of which is uh the one that causes uh, COVID-19, that's the disease it's linked to. Uh, another one is the uh, virus linked with the SARS epidemic back in 2003. So, you know, coronavirus itself is, is nothing new, and it's believed to be, to in this case at least, have originated uh, with, uh, you know, sort of exotic meat markets in, uh, you know, Southeast Asian countries where the hygiene conditions are also not very good. Um, now, it's, uh, it's, it, the illness itself, um, it spreads uh, uh, through similar means as the flu, uh, and it's slightly more contagious than the flu, but not as contagious as measles is. Mm. Um, now, people who carry this illness can often carry it for up to 14 days without showing any symptoms. Um, and uh, the uh, CDC and other organizations have advised to you know, wash your hands regularly, uh, don't touch your mouth or your eyes uh, with unwashed hands um, and, you know, limit your contact with people who seem to show flu-like symptoms. You know, the symptoms include, uh, at a basic level, things like, you know, a dry cough, a fever, uh, and a bad uh, cold. Um, some of the other symptoms include a deep fatigue, um, fever, diarrhea, and so on. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, we know that there have been 80,000 cases so far and 3,000 people dead over the world. Uh, and while the number of uh, Chinese uh, deaths appears to be reducing, uh, we are hearing of reports uh, from countries like, especially Italy and Iran and Japan, uh, where we're seeing a massive ramp up in uh, the number of cases. Yeah, I re- I saw an article today that like 10% of the Iranian lawmakers have uh, COVID-19. And that's because they have a lot of uh, unrestricted travel between the two countries because of our sanctions on Iran. Um, but how, so how contagious is this? Well, I guess maybe the question is how much do we really know? Because it started in China and China seems to be fairly secretive about a lot of stuff where they seem to be giving uh, more of the the better news in some ways. Have they started to give more information? And as it has spread, do we know a little bit more about it that is educating doctors and governments around the world? 
Uh, look, we're already hearing reports that the, Ch- uh, that the Chinese government has been covering up many key details, including the fact that people were identified uh, with probably this condition well before that information was released. Um, now, we, what we've been led to believe is that the death rate in China is about 2.3%. Uh, probably a better indicator are, is the death rate uh, outside China, uh, which I think including the Chinese figure right now, so it's at about 3.5% of those infected. But the important thing to um, remember at, at the moment um, is that uh, while that figure doesn't seem too high, I mean, it's significantly higher than the flu, common flu, which is 0.1%. Uh, it much more severely impacts uh, the elderly, uh, people with pre-existing cardiovascular or lung-related conditions uh, who have a significantly higher mortality rate. Uh, if you're young, fit and healthy, and I guess it's detected in time and treated, uh, your odds are very good. Uh, but of course, you know, it probably will involve hospitalization of some sort and a quarantine, uh, which of course is a daunting prospect for most of us. Absolutely. So the death rate seems low, but is the virality of it higher? Is that why everyone is so concerned? Uh, the, the virality is higher, but keep in mind there's also this public perception issue, right? Um, a number of countries, including Australia, have put in place travel bans for people coming through China. Uh, some places have immigration bans. Um, and, and there is a certain degree of public panic. Uh, for example, some medical authorities have said if you're quarantined, uh, in the event it actually comes to that, uh, then you have to stop, then you should stockpile about 14 days worth of medication, food, and so on. Uh, this has led to, uh, you know, in Australia at least, supermarkets being emptied of toilet paper already. You know, so people are panicking quite a lot. Now, what I would say for the United States, though, and, and this is where, you know, the, uh, the failures and, and the stupid mistakes of government come into the picture. Uh, there already is a, a diagnostic test for the illness uh, developed by a company in Utah. That test is being used in European countries already. Uh, now, that test has not been used in the United States. They've instead, uh, the FDA has instead used uh, another test developed by the government, which was flawed. Uh, and they've limited their testing to people who have either traveled from uh, the associated countries or who have been in contact with those who have. Now, as we know, uh, you can carry this for about two weeks before showing any symptoms, uh, which means that we may not fully know just how bad the threat is to the USA uh, for at least a week or two weeks. And that's assuming that these diagnostic kits are deployed at the same rate the government says they will be. So when you hear the diagnostic test, what exactly does that mean? Because I don't really understand what that means. Uh, that's, it's basically a way to test to see if someone is actually carrying the virus. Is it, uh, is it blood or saliva, or how do they test for it? I'm not entirely sure on, on those details. Uh, okay. I do know that it is transmittable uh, through air particles that would include saliva, uh, something more severe, like Ebola, for example. Ebola, when that outbreak happened in West Africa, had a much more high, had a much higher mortality rate, but it was also a lot harder to transmit. Uh, that involved blood or fluid contact. Uh, we know that with this particular, you know, uh, coronavirus, that it is transmittable through being in, even in proximity with people who might be carrying it, and they might appear to be completely healthy. Hmm. So. You know, living in Indiana, you know, three minutes from a hospital and having health insurance and being 36 and healthy, I don't know that I'm necessarily hearing uh, a reason to panic. I, I, I don't know if you saw the video. Just go to Twitter and look up 
uh, Costco panic, and it was over the weekend. I mean, it was hundreds of people lined up outside of a Costco. I'm not lining up on outside of Costco based on this information. So, why do you why do you think that it hits people in a certain way where they they're driven to go out and and buy when really like you're probably going to catch the flu long before you ever catch COVID nineteen. Well, I think it's a part of the side effect of living in a modern world where we really don't have too much to you know, worry about. And we do have such a good uh, safety net in place um, that when something like this comes up on the horizon, uh, you know, the, the mere specter of it and the mere potential that it could turn out to be a lot worse than it initially seems to be, uh, it's probably enough to make people uh, panic and, and think, okay, look, just in case I'm going to go ahead and do this. Because the last thing you want is to be in the kind of situation that a lot of the Chinese have ended up in, uh, which is that, you know, the sudden imposition of quarantine, very strict measures, meant that a number of people were unable to contact their elderly relatives in time, who ended up dying, um, or disabled uh, children and so on. Uh, pets were left unfed, some of them died. Uh, you know, that sort of scary, scary situation that we saw play out in China, where the government is very authoritarian and really come down on this. Uh, I think also instills a certain amount of fear because technically under the law, the U.S. government and state authorities do have the power uh, in a worst-case scenario to uh, impose measures that aren't as severe but are you know, pretty strict in terms of quarantine. And I guess that is a very scary idea for most people. That is a huge disruption for daily life. I know some people may bristle when I ask this, but do you think I, I, I mean, Ebola was very scary. I remember being a, a kid younger when that was going on. I'm not sure how old you are, but I was, I was like 10. So I was sure I was going to get Ebola and die. Um, and then, you know, Dustin Hoffman's in space suits and I'm like, Oh man, it's really going to hit. And, and the death rate is, as far as I understand for Ebola is like one in three. So it's, it's a very lethal disease. Uh, but I don't know anybody who's ever gotten West Nile Ebola uh, you know, the swine flu or any of these things. Um, so really at the end of the day, people need to just do basic preparations, right? Wash their hands, you know, don't touch your face, just be careful. But at the end of the day, you're probably going to be safe if you're one of our listeners. Yeah. At least that's how it seems right now. This is one of those situations where in all probability, you know, this is massively overblown and, a state of normalcy uh, can come back to the country and, and the world uh, you know, over the next few months. However, given the fact that there hasn't been a full rollout of you know, a diagnosis for this sort of thing um, beyond a very limited window, and there won't be for another few weeks, uh, there's just a question mark hanging there at the moment. And inevitably, where there is a question mark, people are going to panic slightly. Um, and uh, there has been some pretty big disruption economically, yeah. Uh, a number of countries, of course, have the supply chains in China. And while the number of, uh, and I emphasize the word reported, cases in China has dropped significantly, um, they're still, you know, their economy has slowed down to a complete crawl. Uh, and a number of companies are already looking to shift their operations, uh, the supply chain elsewhere, which I think is a good thing in the long run in, in terms of minimizing risk exposure. We do know that a lot of pandemics throughout history, both recently with the SARS case and historically with things like the bubonic plague and so on, originated in that region of the world and spread very quickly through the trade routes. Um, what we, you know, as libertarians certainly don't want to see is uh, industries uh, who did not, or companies who did not plan ahead for such risks, demanding bailouts from the taxpayer, like what's happening in Australia, 
where universities and the tertiary education sector have been badly hit by the travel restrictions and they're asking for government handouts. But really, you know, it's one of the vagaries of risks that comes with life and it's on the job of the government, of course, to bail you out for not uh, planning ahead for such, um, you know, well, yeah, that's one of the, the challenges of, I think, being a libertarian, because you want free markets and you want to expand your territory. But at the same time, you look at the security risks of the United States military, for instance, has their antibiotics produced in China. And what we saw with the masks being produced in China is China just kept the masks. So it doesn't seem to be a very secure uh, supply chain if we're really over-relying on China. So how much do you think this, do, do you think it's a, a slight blip and in six months everybody will forget about it? Or do you think that companies are really going to take a serious look at diversifying where they're creating things and maybe even bring jobs back to America and maybe charge a little more to diversify their risk? Oh, they already are, and they definitely will. And then what's interesting is it probably won't even necessarily involve having to move production back home and charging a lot more money. Uh, a number of countries like Vietnam, Bangladesh, and, and so on are already, you know, seeing a large influx of uh, you know, production, infrastructure, and investment, and so on, in response to not just this recent the recent uh, disease happenings, but in response to the wider issue of, of you know, trade tensions with China, you know, the, the, the tariff wars, and so on. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's just a way for companies to, I guess, mitigate their risk. And there's also the fact that, look, you know, the, the, the Chinese, their living standards have gone up so much, you know, in recent years that uh, that has led to them demanding higher wages, mm. right? And they have a smaller population. Uh, I mean, they're going to have a, an aging population issue in the long term because of their uh, history of the one-child policy. So there are a number of reasons for companies to switch. Uh, with the USA... I think one of the biggest beneficiaries of recent happenings uh, would be Mexico. You know, uh, NAFTA was recently renegotiated. Um, a number of companies already moving their manufacturing, you know, from China into Mexico, um, where, you know, besides issues like the cartel violence and law and order situation, your cost of manufacturing and transport to the USA in some cases is lower. Uh, and it takes, you know, only a few days to move a product from uh, a factory in Mexico to the U.S., it takes about 14 days sometimes to get that moved from China. Um, and, and look, I don't, know, I don't know about you, but one of my biggest concerns that I've seen are these private companies who, you know, become afraid to call out the Chinese government for their authoritarian behavior, the human rights abuse, the organ harvesting. Uh, we've seen Blizzard Entertainment go as far as punish uh, gamers for simply expressing political opinions because they're worried about being shut out of China overnight. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, of the private sector, you know, becoming a bit more skeptical uh, of, of China and diversifying into other countries is a good thing. I, t I completely agree, because while I am a non-interventionist, I don't believe that China is a good actor on the world stage. I do think things like Belt and Road, uh, where they're investing in infrastructure, does pose a long-term threat to really western nations and uh, uh, free market nations i may be the better way to put it because china uh, china if this is all being used as a convenient excuse to re-examine business and say maybe we ought to start looking elsewhere and stop supporting reg a regime that will imprison two million muslims and you know just raise churches left and right and isn't really free and 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 we're supporting them i'm okay with it i, I personally because 
I'm willing to pay a little bit more or slightly more or support companies that choose not to do business with China because I just don't trust China has any inkling of freedom. They seem more bent on domination than freedom. I'm not that we're perfect, but at the same time, like we don't have uh, concentration camps for religious and political prisoners. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, um, one of the things with Chinese model that has made it so effective is that they've combined aspects of capitalism with aspects of top-down state control uh, to the point where, you know, they're really hardcore mercantilists in some ways. Uh, most of their top companies have a close relationship with either the government or people connected to the government, uh, which makes it very easy for them to simply shut companies out uh, for their CEO saying or doing the wrong thing. Um, we've seen them wantonly arresting and throwing into jail uh, business executives who, you know, foreign nationals who stay there and have said or done the wrong thing or, uh, you know, have been a victim of their justice system, which isn't always, uh, the, you know, the most respectful to a fair and due, you know, due process and so on. Um, and, and look, one of the, you know, one of the theoretical reasons why we've seen China actually become more authoritarian as they become more prosperous is I think that uh, people ultimately are willing to trade away, you know, as rational actors, a certain amount of liberty uh, for being kept happy, having a roof over their head, having a good job and, and so on. Um, and that economic development has been used to offset some of the government's increasing overreach. But keep in mind, you know, if, if China faces a competitive threat from other countries around the world, if their ability to, you know, wield their power and attract all this investment and so on is challenged by other countries who are able to offer something better in a less authoritarian environment, then that also makes it harder for them to justify their own people with um, the level of authoritarianism that they're engaging in. Um, and this is only in theory, you know, we haven't seen this play out in practice, but I think uh, if there is an actual serious threat to China's economic dominance, from competition, then that will lead to increasing demands for the government to treat its own people better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. If people would like to follow you, and and I, you talk about a lot of different things, not just public health, but um, tax reform, technology, foreign relations, people would like to follow you, where can they do that? So my Twitter handle is at Mr. Jeet, M-I-S-T-R-J-E-E-T. And uh, you can find uh, some of my writings also on reason.org. Um, uh, I write on a number of topics, uh, education, finance, uh, tech, foreign, foreign affairs, consumer choice, and so on. Satya Marara, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks, Annie. Absolutely. All right, thank you for listening to We Are Libertarians, and we will talk to you soon. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network, and you can find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. Shows like We Are Libertarians with Chris Spangle, The Brian Nichols Show, The Boss Hog of Liberty, Now Hear This with Chris Spangle, Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart Mann, and our training podcast, Upward, Libertarian Activism. All of these shows are supported by our patrons. If you'd like to become a Patreon member, visit wearelibertarians.com. Thank you so much for listening to this show. 